I'm Elle Kamihira, and thank you for listening to Subject to Power. One of my favorite things is when a particular discipline is applied in ways it wasn't intended, and a new way of seeing emerges. Such is the case with my guest today, Australian journalist Grant Wyeth. Grant is a political analyst, covering international relations for a range of publications, including The Diplomat, Foreign Policy, World Politics Review, and more. However, after landing in Iceland during the pandemic, he was introduced to the family court there and became interested in the ways in which the institution is hostile to mothers and indifferent to the welfare of children. This is not a new phenomenon, but very little media attention is paid to family court. It's not a sexy subject. For most, it's an icky subject a place with lots of dirty laundry and messy private matters. But Grant took his international relations lens to the subject and began making connections between what he saw happening with individual family conflicts and what is playing out on the world stage. And that's what we're talking about today. I did want to sort of go into, and I've thought about this a lot lately, that, you know, family court enjoys such a low status. It's kind of like the armpit of the justice system in a way, but it's actually very crucial. It's a kind of a fulcrum for where marriage laws and who governs the family and what men get to do and what women get to do in relationships is decided. So it actually, this is so much more power there, power dynamics there than at first glance. I wanted to talk a little bit about what is happening in family court in the Western world, really, maybe all over the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also like when I discovered the family court and, and what <laughs> was going on, I found it extraordinary that this is not kind of front page news constantly because it's so crucial to how we interact as human beings and what we value as societies as well. And at the moment you have the family court has been captured by a series of ideas which really are about this kind of natural authority of of men over the household. And it's a mind-boggling phenomenon on how an idea, parental alienation, that was created by a kind of psychiatrist who was looking to give men a legal tactic. You know, parental alienation syndrome wasn't about diagnosing a child. It was about creating a legal tactic. And this legal tactic has become the dominant lens that we view custody disputes through now. And the idea behind it is this idea that lack of normalized contact with a father is more damaging to a child than any violence a father could commit. It's about this idea that men have the right to commit violence against their family members and that women and children simply need to submit themselves to this. And if they don't, the system will punish them. And again, going back, you know, men who who are exposed, their violence are exposed, again, deemed to be the victims. Oh, we're the victims here because our violence was exposed to the world. Looking at it in, a, I guess, a wider social context, parental alienation really came up as a response to no-fault divorce. So in the 1970s, no-fault divorce 
became widespread throughout the United States and, and here in Australia as well. This gave women a lot more power to leave abusive relationships. She didn't have to justify why she had to leave a relationship, a, a marriage, to a judge who was sceptical of of women or who believed that men did have the right to, to dominate women. She could just say, I want out. So it increased women's power within relationships. Parental alienation was, was the tool to suck them back in. It's the tool that's been able to suck women back in to say, no, that you don't have a right to leave these relationships. And if you try, you're the one that, that the state will punish. And we're seeing this kind of dominance, especially now, come up with Roe versus Wade from the Supreme Court. This is really about, and I've been thinking about this, there's something kind of ridiculous going on. And I'm going to put it in a crude way, but what the state is valuing both the family court and with abortion is male ejaculation. That is what the state values. A man has ejaculated and the state has to protect that ejaculation. (laughs) You know, if a woman says that she doesn't want the pregnancy or the pregnancy is not viable or it's a threat to her life or it's rape or incest, these things are irrelevant. A man has ejaculated and we have to honour that. There's this exalted sperm, you know, and then... If a woman does have a child and then there's a, there's a breakdown in the relationship or, or family violence, well, the man's sperm is still what the state values. It says that male biology carries greater weight than male action. doesn't matter if a man is violent. A man has created something from his biology and that is what we have to respect, even though the woman does far more, you know, 99% of the biological work. Women's biology is not valued by the state. You know, it's male biology that's valued. It's absurd. It's incredibly absurd. But this is the perspective. This is the perspective. And, And you look at something like Tucker Carlson's recent ridiculous kind of documentary he did on the decline of masculinity. It's all about this kind of idea that, you know, masculinity has to be respected, but male sperm is something that is is of this high value. We need to place above all our governing structures and, and we need to worship and exalt this sperm. I mean, it's it's nuts. It's kind of nuts. It's kind of nuts when you put it that way, but it also tracks with like uh, the patriline, patrilineality, when it is really about like protecting your biology going forward and a complete enslavement to that. Yeah, absolutely. But there's something about masculinity that just is obsessed with masculinity. If you know, men really love being men and men love their own masculinity. And there's something incredibly homoerotic about it as well. I've been thinking about this as well in terms of something like the rough sex phenomenon that is kind of going on at the moment, which is really, we need a new language to discuss heterosexuality because that's not attraction to women. That's about hurting women. It's about dominating women. If you're attracted to women, you actually like being around women. These men are not attracted to women. They're attracted to dominating women. And, you know, this form of of masculinity and how it exhibits itself, whether it exhibits itself through sexual violence, which rough sex is, it's sexual violence, and through wanting to force women to carry babies that they don't want or, or are dangerous to them, through trying to maintain a hold over children and, and women through the family court. I mean, it's all it's all kind of interrelated. It's all part of this kind of idea that Men, I won't say men, I'll say a lot of men don't actually really like women. They don't like women. 
they don't enter into relationships with women because they like women. They enter into relationships with women because they want to dominate those women and they want to control those women. And it's it's not a relationship based on love and caring. It's a relationship based on control and dominance. And that's why I think we need a whole new language around relationships and especially around sex as well, because it's not attraction. It's not attraction. It's something else. And I mean, it brings to mind the tremendous proliferation of porn, online porn, like boys who have their first sexual exposure to boys and girls, both violent pornography. Yeah, I was reading statistics about this in the UK a a few months ago, and something like 60% of boys are, this is their first understanding of sex is through porn. I mean, it's not through any kind of sex education in schools or being taught, you know, told about it by their parents. It's through porn. And I mean, it completely warps their perspective and it gives them an expectation that this is what sex is about. It's about violence against women. Porn sick boys is what we talk about now. But I wanted to kind of circle back to the family court thing and the other huge problem for women is that women are also not believed. They're punished. There is a backlash like you described, but there's also this tremendous credibility deficit in family court in particular. And I'm knee deep in a documentary about it now. So I see it. I'm seeing it a lot where essentially The man is allowed to control the narrative completely. And the women's story or the women's side of things is just simply not believed. She doesn't have to act any particular way, crazy or unhinged or whatever. I've seen every variety of behavior in court and they're just not believed, period. Yeah, and I I think it, it goes to this idea of courts may have laws, But courts are really driven by cultures and there's still this culture of suspicion within courts towards women, that women are wanting to leave relationships because they're disgruntled with the man for for reasons that are not legitimate. They just don't like this man anymore and they want to leave the relationship and it, and it has nothing to do with abuse or anything like this. And they make up lies. This is the dominant culture within the family court is that women make up lies to try and keep children from men. But the studies that have looked at this have found that it's minuscule number. You know, the major Canadian study on this found it was around 2% of women who who fabricate stories. And that study also found that men are 16 times more likely to lie to the family courts than women. And yet the, the culture of the court is that men are always these paragons of truth and that women are always fabricating stories, you know, and trying to Trying to break down these kind of cultures is incredibly difficult. I think that there's been laws, you've got kind of like Caden's law and and Kira's law in in Pennsylvania and New York as well, in the United States, that are trying to get extra training for judges. And I think that's part of the solution. Training is obviously part of the solution, but part of the problem is ideological. And no amount of training is actually going to undo the ideology of a lot of these judges, because they simply do think that women are suspicious. Once you have that deep within someone's psychology, you can't counteract that. I mean, it's there permanently. I think if we valued the family court more, which we don't, but there should be a system that is more selective of judges and judges should have to meet certain standards to actually be on the court and the court should be able to filter out these judges who do have this kind of inherent suspicion of women. 
I know that people are toying with different solutions. And I know one, one solution is to have juried trials for custody hearings, putting 12 people in charge of the decision as opposed to one judge. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea has to be broadened away from a single judge because you can't have, especially you can't have a child's life being ruined, which is a lot of what is going on here. A child's life is being ruined because of the biases of a single judge. I mean, that's, it's so deeply unfair to that child. It's just not right. There has to be a better system that broadens the decision-making to make sure decisions that are actually sympathetic to children are being made because that's not what's happening at the moment. Yeah, and I also think there's a 50-50 philosophy where the going school of thought is that children benefits most by having both parents, disregarding what kind of parents they actually are, abusive, non-abusive, whatever. And the special role of mothers is disregarded at the moment. And I think, I mean, I've kind of written about this before, is that when you when you try and undermine maternalism, you know, mothers know when their children are in danger. It's instinctive. And when the state says, no, you're not allowed to protect your child. And what you know in your bones is not actually true. You know, the state's playing a dangerous game with our humanity there when they try to undermine maternalism. Maternalism is something that we should value far, far more than we do. And, and we just, we just don't. It's extraordinary. And I think one of the other extraordinary things is this idea that if, if a mother has been trying to protect their child from a dangerous father and then the court rules that, no, this father needs to have contact, and then you have these, these absurd programs like Family Bridges, which try and brainwash children into loving their father and hating their mother, you know, trying to, even though this child could be 14, 15 years old, and fully aware of what's going on, being able to articulate what they know, being able to say, no, I do not want to be with my father. He's dangerous. He's abusive. I don't like him. And these programs that these children are forced into that try and reverse their thinking to try and force them, separate them from their mother and force them to, to love their father. I mean, these are extraordinary programs. It, it blows my mind how dangerous and how damaging they are to children. And called reunification camps, which is yeah. a deeply cynical yeah, <laughs> like yeah. term for yeah. it. They're effectively brainwashing camps, you know. Yeah. Speaking about the motivations of family court, obviously the fact that you have judges who are ideologically prejudiced against women, no question. But you also write about something else, which I think is really, really interesting, is that they are they themselves are fearful of taking too many rights away from masculinity or yeah. men. We had a man here in Australia called Leonard Warwick, who this was in the 1980s. He was a wife beater. He was highly abusive to his wife. He and his wife went to family court and she was granted full custody of the child. In response, he went and shot a judge on his doorstep. He blew up the houses of two other judges. He blew up a family court building, which was luckily empty at the time. And then there was a church group who were helping his wife and child hide from him. He went and blew up the church hall, which killed a man and injured 70 others. He, he also killed a judge's wife when he blew up their house and he, he injured another judge in, in the second bombing of the judge's house. So this was a man who just went on a, a complete rampage because he couldn't handle the fact that 
he was no longer allowed to have authority over women and children. And I think this is something that is an ingrained fear within these court systems, is that if we don't give men what they want, they'll become much worse. They'll become even more violent and they might come after us. You know, they might come after us. They might attack the state. They might attack the court. And it's this idea that violence is a natural part of masculinity. And so it always has to be placated. We always have to find ways to just minimize it because it's this idea that we can't have disgruntled men in our society. Men need to be placated because otherwise they may get even worse and they may start organizing in groups and they do these father's rights groups who are ironically... They're not children's rights groups, they're father's rights groups. And this is what the state fears. The state really fears this cohort of men, a cohort of angry and aggressive men who may come after them. And so they sacrifice the welfare of women and children in order to not create these kind of groups of men, these aggressive and and violent groups of men. So I think that is really part of their calculation. It's part of the calculation that we have to give men something or else they'll become way worse. Yeah. And I also think, I don't know if you have it so much in in Australia as in the US and Canada, but, you know, mass shooters and mass terrorists, a good portion of those episodes start with domestic violence. They either attack their families first or they have a history of domestic violence. So it's entirely founded the fear in that, you know, men will act out in very, very violent ways. And a lot of those many men who were involved in the the January 6th insurrection as well had domestic violence records. And that goes back to this idea of, you know, the household and political violence being just intimately linked that the psychology that drives household violence is also the psychology that drives political violence as well. Yeah. You stated in one of your articles that we cannot solve war without solving domestic violence, the world's primary security problem. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Well, if we're talking about security, so in international relations, your primary security is war. That's the problem that we're trying to solve in international relations. But in recent years, there's been a broader understanding of security and that it comes down to not just the prevention of war, but actual human security. If you are able to, you know, not only go outside your door and be secure, but also inside your house to be secure as well. And this this includes things like, you know, having a livable wage as well and having health care and, and these kind of things. This is all relates to human security. In terms of actual death of people, The murder of women is still our primary security problem, and it happens far too often. I mean, here in Australia, it's a woman every 10 days. In the UK, it's, I think it's three every fortnight. I'm not sure about the statistics for the United States, but it's our primary problem, and it's one that we don't pay enough attention to. We don't see it as a problem. We see it as something that just naturally occurs. But also, I guess what I've been trying to understand is how this relates to our bigger, broader security. Because to me, it's the same kind of psychological impulses, the same psychological impulses that lead to this kind of a power abuse in the home, which is where most women get murdered. It's in the home, either through a current or a former partner. How do these psychological motivations also lead to our psychological motivations in the international realm. And so one of the ideas that I've kind of been working with is this idea of natural authority. 
especially if you're looking at the family court, there's an idea that men have a natural authority over the household, that you know the state actually stops at the doorstep and inside the household, it's the man's fist that is the actual law. I wrote a piece recently looking at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And this is a very similar concept that Putin feels that he has a natural authority over Ukraine. Ukraine's attempt to, to leave and try and form a relationship with Europe is something that he refuses to tolerate the same way a man refuses to tolerate a woman trying to leave a relationship. And so he's launched an attack on Ukraine. And so it's these same psychological impulses. You know, one may be just on a small scale and one may be on a large scale, a war, but but they're driven by the same motivations. At the sort of center of this, obviously, is masculinity. You can't look at this problem and not see that that's kind of where all the arrows are pointing to. And so I want to know if what your thoughts are about masculinity, about what it is that makes this current state of affairs in terms of masculinity. There's something about masculinity that makes it very susceptible to power, lust, control, violence. And I think, I feel like we can't actually solve these problems without bringing men along with this and trying to explain to men that their own personal lives will be much better if they find their dignity not in power, lust, control, violence, but they find their dignity in love, kindness, caring, compassion, empathy, responsibility, these things. But it's very difficult because there's such a culture built around these ideas, these kind of masculine traits that men have to be strong and powerful, men have to be in control all the time, men have to exert their dominance over other individuals or other women or exert their dominance through states. You know, the way Putin is doing now, he's he's a man who believes in personal dominance and then he's using the arms of the Russian state to, to exert that dominance. There's a whole culture and, it, and it's built up, obviously, over thousands and thousands of years. And it, it's kind of wired into our DNA that this is the way men behave and this is what men are meant to do. And so it becomes very difficult to counteract that. But... It is possible. I mean, I have male friends who are kind, loving, caring partners and fathers. And so it is possible for men to transcend these things. I think it requires leadership. And it's something that we're lacking at the moment. We're really lacking kind of male leadership on on these issues. So yesterday, just an example, I I was watching the news and we're in an election campaign here in Australia. And There was some commentators on the news discussing funding that's been announced for, say, women's shelters in a response to domestic violence. And I was thinking, well, that's all well and good, but that's just reacting to a problem. It's not getting out in front of the problem. And where are our political leaders that are actually addressing the problem front on and saying that these kind of behavioural patterns from men are unacceptable and that you know, there needs to be a a kind of reformation of masculinity for the benefit of the country. Yeah, I can't wait for that leader to come along or those (laughs) leaders or or that movement, I should say. And I think um, what does happen when these like natural authorities, as you call it, are threatened or taken away, there is a claim of victimhood where men feel truly victimized when that authority is taken away, when they're not allowed to act with impunity, when they're not allowed to act. We're just watching the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial here. I mean, he really 
cloaks himself in this victimhood that he's been, you know, he's been stripped of his masculinity, he's been stripped of his his dignity. I just want you to uh, elaborate on on that, perhaps. So I've been thinking about this as well, because there's a political psychologist called Karen Stenner, who does a lot of work on authoritarian personality types, is what she calls them. And these are people who don't really understand the concept of mutually beneficial rules. They only understand their dominance and their their victory. So in international relations, to, to kind of take it back to my field, a mutually beneficial rule is something like freedom of navigation, that you can sail your goods from one country to another country without a third country seizing those goods, because that third country knows that if it does, then it's liable to have its goods being seized. And if you look at something like American democracy at the moment, democracy, again, is a mutually beneficial rule. It benefits everyone who wishes to participate. But you have this group of people now who just claim that Trump didn't lose the election. It was a fraud. But that's not what they really mean. What they really mean is my group has the legitimacy. It has the authority to govern forever. And your group does not have any social legitimacy at all. And so this is part of the natural authority. It's part of this idea that there are social structures which need to be in place, which have my dominance over your dominance. And, you know, it can come in the form of men dominating over women. It can come in the forms of white people dominating over black people or, or other ethnicities. In India, so India is one of my areas of expertise, you have a, a situation where the, the governing party, the BJP, are a, a kind of Hindu nationalist party. Part of their whole idea is Hindus need to be dominant over Muslims. And if they get criticised for this, they take it as a as a personal affront. They, they claim that, oh, you're just Hindu phobic. And it's going back to this kind of victimhood. And it, it's like, we have the natural authority to dominate Muslims. That's our right. If you criticize us for that, it's you demonstrating a hatred of us. And this is the same where you get a lot of men who claim that feminists are anti-men. If you say that men are not entitled to violence over women, well, you're being anti-men because men have a natural right to violence. Men have the natural right to dominate women. And so they don't understand, going back to Karen Stenner, that there are people with authoritarian personality types who simply don't understand these things. They only understand the world in terms of oppressor and oppressed. And if you're not actively oppressing someone, then you're being oppressed yourself. Yeah. And it becomes incredibly difficult to actually reason with these kind of people because they just don't understand the world in any any other way. And unfortunately, as we're seeing with Johnny Depp as well, there are people who are very sympathetic to this idea, who are sympathetic, you know, that Johnny Depp has the right to actually claim victimhood here because his abuse never should have been exposed. He has the right to dominate that relationship. So I think that's one of the problems that we really face is that there are personality types that struggle to actually just understand the world in terms of mutually beneficial rules or just cooperative and empathetic relationships. Yeah, so that that's like patriarchy personified, really, is a hierarchical relationship to everything. The misunderstanding that, that feminism represents an alternative reign to patriarchy that we want women to rule 
they're still looking at it in hierarchical terms, whereas feminism, of course, is challenging that hierarchical worldview. You, you write about feminist foreign policy. What is that about? So this was a, an idea initially developed by Sweden, and it's become adopted now. Spain has adopted the idea of feminist foreign policy, Mexico, Canada to a certain extent as well. So the initial idea was for, in Sweden's foreign policy, that they would view every policy they had through what they called the three R's, which are rights, resources, and representation for women. And to understand basically, does this policy give women rights? Does it give them representation? And does it give them resources? And so that was the initial, and that that's kind of the practical kind of application of feminist foreign policy. The other part is, is looking at it as a lens on power. So really trying to understand where power comes from and how power is exerted in the world and how power can be redistributed. It comes down to a lot of, I guess, understanding of these, these motivations. And we think that maybe states are these entities that function by themselves, but they're actually they're all driven by the psychology of the individuals who made the decisions. So states have psychologies themselves, and these psychologies are wedded to the psychologies of the individuals who make the decisions. So the idea of promoting rights, resources, and representation for women is, is really about trying to change the psychology of the state kind of through a ground-up manner. You know, if you have more female politicians, if you have more women who are negotiating treaties and, and negotiating trade deals and things like this, then you actually, you're kind of breaking down the kind of patriarchal structures that are inherently conflictual. You know, that's the ultimate goal is to try and minimize conflict. And, you know, if you just have multiple states run by these chest-beating alpha males, it's a recipe for conflict. It's not, a, it's not a recipe for reducing conflict. So that's the kind of idea of feminist foreign policy is, is to really kind of alter the psychology of states to make them more cooperative and make them more empathetic and more sympathetic to each other. Thank you for that explanation. I think that's so, so apt and insightful. I wonder, at first glance, people who hear the term feminist foreign policy, it would sound, again, like women are taking over. But it actually sounds like the movement we were talking about earlier, giving a place to um, different type of masculinity as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it is, it's about normalizing female leaders as well, which is something, I mean, here in Australia, we had our first female prime minister in 2010. And a lot of men in the country just went into meltdown. I mean, the idea of having a female prime minister was just, you know, beyond their comprehension. And she was just viciously attacked. And as she said, she hopes that it makes it easier for the next woman that comes along, that maybe now that the public is able to psychologically adjust to this a bit more. And I think it's now becoming normalized, especially in you know the Nordic countries. And you've had kind of women like Angela Merkel in, in Germany as well. It's becoming a lot more normalized. But there are still, I guess, a lot of men who just do not understand or cannot psychologically deal with the idea of a, of a female political leader. And that's going to take a lot of time to break down. You know, it's going to take a lot of time to break down, unfortunately. Yeah, we've had our near misses in the US with Hillary Clinton and so on. But 
the psychology of the U.S. is not in place where large male populations wouldn't have meltdowns or that it wouldn't result in a tremendous backlash of some kind. But I was thinking about something you wrote about strong male leadership or strong masculinity that we are attracted, I think it's fair to say, to powerful men, all of us. We are attracted to what feels like a strong hand, someone who's in charge and control of everything. But people like Putin or Trump, for that matter, that really is not what it is. It's kind of a mirage. And you talk about ruling by chaos. I know I'm paraphrasing, but I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, that it's really not all what it seems. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the, especially with the Trump phenomenon is he sold himself as this kind of, you know, man who can take control of, of the state. And he's, you know, a, a kind of traditional strong man that you would see in other countries. But he's also just a chaotic actor. I mean, he's a completely chaotic actor, a man who is only really capable of understanding the world in terms of what he wants in the next five minutes. I mean, that that's really his worldview. And he just creates chaos wherever he goes. And I think part of it is he obviously has a very turbulent personality, but I think part of it also is that he feels that he thrives in chaos. If he can keep everyone else guessing about what he's going to do, then that's a win for him. And I think Putin's quite similar. Putin's a man of chaos as well. And it really comes back to, I guess, a social dominance. And I try and look at these through, you know, personal relationships as well, where, you know, men who try and create a subordinate relationship with women, a woman who never knows what a man's going to do, is obviously always going to be on edge and she'll always have to be tiptoeing around him. She'll always be having to find ways to, to serve him. And that's really what I guess men like these want. They, they want a servant. They don't want a partner. And the chaos, these chaotic behavioral traits are part of creating that, that servitude. It's, it's part of the way that you can keep people on edge and keep people always feeling like they need to, to try and placate you, but they never can because being placated is not the goal. Being chaotic is the goal. I just find that paradox, very contradiction, very interesting, yeah. where it looks like control, but it really isn't. I think also part of the Trump thing is it's also a strange psychology that we've got going on. The pace of change over the last kind of three decades, especially three or four decades, has been immense. And a lot of people have found that difficult. And they're expressing their struggles with this through chaotic actors like Trump, because they're searching for some kind of security. But someone like Trump is not security. I mean, Trump is more turbulence. He's not creating a, a more stable, secure environment. He's creating more turbulent environment. And there's some counterintuitive motivation that I, I you know, I don't quite understand. I mean, there's a public cynicism, I think, that mm -hmm. they think if everything is chaotic and corrupt, then we might as well vote for the person who is so obviously chaotic and obviously corrupt. You know, I feel like that's a driving force behind the kind of Trump phenomenon, which is strange because it only makes these people's lives worse. These people who are anxious and insecure and Trump and, and Fox News don't help them. Trump and Fox News only make them more anxious and insecure. I mean, yeah. the four years of Trump, it was just so traumatic to live through. Yeah. 
thank you so much for the thank conversation. You. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on. I had, I had a great time. Thank you for listening to Subject to Power. You can find the show online at subjecttopower.com or subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts. I'd love to know your thoughts on these conversations, so please drop a note on the website or find us on social media. The best way to support the show is to rate and review Subject to Power on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. Subject to Power is written, hosted, and produced by me, El Kamihira. Audio engineering is done by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art by B. Johnson. And music by Beware of Darkness. <laughs>